Okay. I became a Christian in uh, 1976 and um, joined a local Anglican church. And not long after I became a Christian, this was the time when the Good News Bible, with its distinctive line-drawing illustrations, was the flavor of the month. That was the, the Bible that everybody used. I mean, the, the NIV was still in its nappy in that stage. You know, it hadn't really penetrated the church. And a few of us... Um, purchased several hundred Good News John's Gospels, uh, the little red booklets they were, uh, and we posted them, each with an accompanying letter to every member of Parliament. And our desire was to get God's Word, or at least a selection of it, into the hands of the nation's decision-makers. Um, you couldn't, I found out, I thought we could, I thought that, that we would be able to just send them bulk and they distribute them, distribute them at their end, but you can't do that. You have to individually address each one and stamp each one, you see. So each gospel was individually and prayerfully packed, stamped, addressed. Um, and needless to say, the vast majority of the MPs totally ignored us. But we did receive some interesting replies. We got a nice letter from uh, a new MP at the time called Brian Mawinney, um, who later became the chairman of the Conservative Party. Um, and as I was saying to the group last night, he, Brian Mawinney is a very devout Christian, and I know some people struggle with somebody being a Christian and a Conservative at the same time, but it, it is true. It is true. And he thanked us. He wrote back a handwritten letter and thanked us. He was going to keep his John's Gospel in his briefcase that he took every day to Parliament and was going to read it in between sessions. We got a letter from the late... Anthony, he wasn't light, late then, but he is now. The late Anthony Wedgwood Ben, better known as Tony Ben, and he replied a little note, and he sent us a sermon that he'd recently preached. I was saying again last night that I wish I'd still got it because it's probably worth some money, a sermon that Tony Ben's preached. <coughs> but we found out that John's gospel really isn't the best gospel to give to unbelievers. It is just way too deep for unbelievers. And yet, it is commonly used in Christian outreach. Time and time again, churches will distribute John's gospel to people who are interested or not even interested. Um, and I think it's possibly because they hope that the recipient will read as far as John 3.16 before they pack in. I think that's the logic partly behind it. But if you want to distribute a gospel to unbelievers, then Luke's gospel is far better. You should use Luke's gospel, and it has a cracking sequel to Luke's gospel, Acts of the Apostles. But because we aren't unbelievers, we are therefore going to enjoy wrestling with and digging into John's gospel today as part of our Jesus in John series. In fact, we have leapt dramatically to John 7. And as you'll see, I've only got two verses to touch on. But it'll take about half an hour because I'm bound to waffle a bit around the edges, you see. Because before we focus in on those, I want to read the whole passage, uh, a good chunk of John's Gospel. So if you've got the NIV, that's what I'm going to read from. If you haven't got the NIV, you might just want to sit back and listen, close your eyes, have a snooze, 
whatever. So, verses 1 to 44. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I'm from, but I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes... Will he perform more miracles, more signs than this man? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What will he mean? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, <coughs> Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So Jesus was the elder brother in a large family. By age 30, he had four brothers and possibly at least three sisters. So in total, the family could have been 10. Now there's no mention of Joseph during Jesus's ministry years. And tradition says that Joseph was quite a bit older than Mary and may have died before he reached, before Jesus reached 30. And we often forget that Mary was a young teenager, probably only about 14 years old when she gave birth to Jesus. And similarly, because of how they're represented in films and in popular religious art, we don't realize that with the exception of Jesus, all of the disciples were also teenagers when Jesus called them to follow him. I mean, maybe in those days, all teenagers had beards. <laughs> Who knows? When I went to school, it seemed that all the teenagers had beards when I was young, but not nowadays. But they were all teenagers except Peter, and this probably gives an insight into some of their behavior, some of the things they used to say, some of the questions they used to ask, the way they were always bantering and biting and stuff. But it is amazing that God comes into the world carried by a teenager, and Jesus brings together a group of people to disciple with the good news to change the world, and it's a group of teenagers. There's an indication in Matthew 17 of their age, because that's the story about the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth. And the coin that comes out of the fish's mouth is sufficient to pay the temple tax for Jesus and Peter only because you had to be at least 20 to pay temple tax. So every other disciple was under the age of 20. 
Early in chapter 7, there's an interesting little comment referring to Jesus where it says in verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. When I read that passage, when they're saying, are you coming up to, are you coming up to, you know, tabernacle? They weren't actually encouraging him. They were, they were just deriding him a bit. They were kind of ragging him a little bit, you see. Imagine growing up and playing with an elder brother, having him around the house, watching him work, learning from him, and then one day finding out that he says he's God. That was, that was their experience. I mean, from our point of view, as we look back on it with the, our understanding of the Bible and Scripture, we find it hard to believe that anyone could grow up around Jesus and not be impacted by him. I mean, how many of us would give our right hand to spend 24-7 with Jesus? I mean, not just for three years in ministry, but this lot grew up with him for 30 years. 30 years. And they didn't believe in him. I mean, how did his sinless nature manifest itself? This is the bloke who, when he was 12 years old and went to the temple, the teachers of the law were astounded by him. Now, I know that some Christians believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, I had to explain that last night. Perpetual virginity of Mary means that she was always a virgin. Not only was she a virgin before Jesus was born and after Jesus was born, but for the rest of her life, she was a virgin. That's what some people believe, and that's why she looks so sad in that picture. (laughs) Now, I know this is a Roman Catholic view, and it's an Eastern Orthodox view, but I was gobsmacked to find out that it was also the view of Martin Luther and John Wesley, and that John Calvin also believed that it could be true. So for them, this large family of Jesus were not Mary's offspring, but were either cousins or they were Joseph's children from a previous marriage. Which if that was true, every one of them would have been older than Jesus. Again, as I said last night, it's not really worth falling out over. There are better things to fall out over than than the perpetual virginity of Mary. We don't really need to start a new denomination, the Reformed Perpetual Virginity of Mary Bay Church. (laughs) But personally, I believe that the perpetual virginity view places just too much emphasis on the significance of Mary's virginity, as though it's extra special, as though in some way her virginity made Jesus extra special. I mean, I do believe that Mary was a virgin, when Jesus was born. I've got no problems with that. But I also believe that if she hadn't have been a virgin when Jesus was born, it wouldn't have impacted Christianity one jot. Why? Because the important aspect concerning the conception is not that Mary was a virgin, but that Jesus, Jesus' dad was God. Now that is the important bit. That is worth dying for. If that was wrong, then Christianity crumbles. The fact that Mary was a virgin just keeps it all neat and tidy. So Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. 
doesn't say whether his sisters believed in him. Perhaps they didn't get an opinion. But they didn't believe in him. He was performing miracles and the family were not convinced. In fact, his brother James, i.e. of the New Testament James, the same bloke who became a leader in the Christian church, only actually believed in Jesus when the risen, glorified Jesus appeared to him physically in front of him. Now, I think that would, that would actually change a lot of people's minds, wouldn't it? It wasn't a matter of faith, I don't think, almost. It was, wow, you know. The risen, glorified Jesus appeared to him, and he said, okay, I'll believe. And, so, and he went on to lead part of the Christian church. Chapter 7 goes on and tells us about Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, I don't know if you're up to scratch with all your Jewish feasts, but in the Old Testament, God established a religious calendar. I mean, we've got a bit of a religious calendar in the church, haven't we? We have like Easter, Whit Sunday, or Pentecost, and you know. So there is kind of like a, a calendar. It's not that important in our stream, but within the established church, there is a calendar that holds things together. And God established one for the Israelites to follow. Within each year, there were seven specific feasts. In the spring, there was Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, and each one was tagged with something that it remembered. So it remembered Israel's deliverance from Egypt, or God's gift of the promised land, or spring harvest. Now, this has nothing to do with Skegness, spring harvest. It was the literal harvest in spring, okay? And then 50 days after Passover came Pentecost, which celebrated the end of the grain harvest, and more importantly, the anniversary of the giving of the law, the Torah, on Mount Sinai. In the fall, there were feasts of trumpets and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And then immediately after those two was the most joyous festival of the lot, where they all had a good knees up, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a week-long celebration, a bit like a combination of Harvest Festival and Greenbelt, mixed together, okay? Because people built booths or shelters to remind them of the years that their ancestors spent in the wilderness. So they would build these booths, although you, had to, you couldn't have the, seal, the, the actual top of the booth had to be slightly open so that you could see the stars through. And for seven days, the people ate, lived, and slept in these booths. And this was one of the three feasts where it, it was commanded that everybody should come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was heaving. There was tens of thousands of people crowded into the city. It was a time to praise God for past gifts of freedom, of land, and of bounteous harvests. Now, part of the ceremony involved a procession of priests who would go from the temple accompanied by musicians playing flutes and they would march down from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And this pool, as Laura was saying last week, was fed by a spring, which meant therefore it was living water. It wasn't stagnant water, it wasn't stale water, it wasn't rain water that had been collected. This was living water, and it was important that it had to be living water. And the water ceremony, part of this feast, was to remind the people, again, of God's miraculous provision, provision 
of giving them water when they were in the wilderness. One of the priests would then take a golden pitcher and he would fill it with water from the pool and then they would turn back and they would process back to the temple. And as they arrived back at the temple, all the sacrifices were laid out on the altar. It was a bit like one of Dave Vickers' barbecues. And at the sound of the shofar, the priest carrying this pitcher would approach the altar and there would be like a crescendo of praise and everyone would be singing loudly and then the whole crowd would fall silent and the water would be poured onto the altar. And John's Gospel tells us that on the last day during the water ceremony, just as the crowd fell silent, Jesus stood and with a loud voice shouted, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus really knew how to say the right thing at the right time. Verse 39, John explains this and says, By this he means the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the Spirit hadn't been given. It was only after Jesus had died, resurrected and ascended and gone back to the Father that the Spirit was then poured out on the early church. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit's indwelling of people was selective and temporary. You would read about how he came upon somebody. He came upon Samson. He came upon Joshua. He came upon David. He came upon Saul. And it also says, and he left. He departed. The Spirit departed. Whereas in the New Testament, the Spirit's indwelling is permanent. And it is a guarantee of our inheritance. And what Jesus said to those people that day still hangs true today. Are we thirsty? Have we ever been thirsty? Have we ever physically been thirsty? Sometimes we say we're a bit parched. But have we ever really been thirsty? Or ever really been hungry? We might have missed the odd meal or two, but have we ever been hungry? (coughs) Jesus is saying to those of us who are thirsty that we can receive Because Jesus is still today the baptizer in Holy Spirit. He is the baptizer in Holy Spirit. That's one of the reassuring things when people who were on the edge of the charismatic movement were a little bit iffy about what was going on with all these nutters and these people manifesting in ways that they weren't sure about. Did they really want to expose themselves to these leaders who would lay hands on them and strange things would happen? doesn't matter because it's Jesus who is baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He is the one who baptizes. Jesus was saying to those people in that temple situation, come and experience reality and not ritual. Ritual is okay as long as it points to an experience of reality. 
But ritual for the sake of ritual, just like tradition for the sake of tradition, where it's dead, goes nowhere. Just locks you in, binds you up, is not life at all. In verse 15, it says, The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man, i.e. Jesus, get such learning without having been taught? And I think this actually exposes an element of where we can go wrong with our Christian faith. That we can think our Christian faith is dependent on what we take in. Our Christian faith is dependent upon external information, even on sitting listening to sermons on a Sunday. You know. So therefore what happens is we, we go off to conferences, we read books, we listen to sermons, we do study courses... And there's an element of where we think it is to do with receiving stuff. It's taking stuff in. Whereas the reality is, the foundation of our faith is a surrendered life and transformation by the Spirit. And that change, that transition, is inside out. Not outside in. Right? It's okay to have some outside in. You know, you know I'm not knocking Bible reading. I'm not knocking going to conferences and things like that. But if we end up where our life is just always a trek looking for things so that we can take information in, then that's not the gist of it. The gist of it is to have a sacrificed life, a life that's open to God, to allow God to work and transform us from the inside out. It is not the accumulation of knowledge. Health warning here. Some of you might misunderstand what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Bible is merely a book until the Spirit of God breathes life into it. And until it is applied when we surrender and make it an authority in our life. We can have read the Bible cover to cover 50 times. You can have a PhD in biblical studies, right? But unless the Holy Spirit applies it to your life and you surrender to the authority of that truth, it is religious clutter. Right? And we need to hear that. It is good that you read your Bible. It is good that you read your Bible. It is good. <laughs> right? I'm not, you know, I was, I, I was going to mention... The wisdom of doing reading the Bible through the year, but then Peter said that he was doing it, so I thought I'd better not mention it. <laughs> Sometimes you can get obsessed with reading the Bible. Sometimes you think, unless you've said your read your daily daily dose, <laughs> even mind, you know what it is, mind over mattress. There you are. You think I, I haven't read today's passage, you know, as though God's finger wagging, saying, "Come on, you've only got ten minutes left." We can sometimes obsess about it. We can obsess about it. I'm not knocking reading the Bible, but we need to read the Bible differently. You know, It should not be a task. It should not be a chore. We should read the Bible so that the Holy Spirit can breathe life into it so that it becomes truth to us, you see. We believe that truth will set you free, but it's only the truth you know and that is applied to your life that will set you free. Right? Not just any old truth, biblical or otherwise. Just because you stick a post-it note on your mirror with a Bible verse on it does not mean that truth will set you free. 
unless you allow the Spirit to apply that to your life. Unless you allow the Spirit to apply it to your life. Unless you allow him in to apply it to your life. That's why we need to listen. We need to read, not with our intellect or our theological understanding, but with our hearts and with an open spirit. Because then we can receive revelation truth. Then we can receive spirit-breathed truth which you will then find will actually change and challenge your theology. But some of us are so locked up with our theology that our theology is like the bouncer on the door. And when something else approaches you and you go, hang on, you're not coming in here. You know, sling your hook, you see. So you're never exposed to the truth that God wants you to because you've already worked out what you believe. And it's in a box and it's right and everybody else is wrong. And that's how a lot of us lead our lives. And when we're exposed to other truth, we're very wary about it. Whereas we should have an open heart and an open spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to challenge and change our theology. And theology just means what you believe about God. Some of you might be sat there thinking, I don't have a theology. You do. Everybody has a theology. It's just what you believe about God. It was David Pawson's 87th birthday yesterday. Still going, I was going to say still going strong. He's got four, four, what is it, fourth degree cancer of, of the prostate. But he's still out there doing it. My early theology in my Christian life was built upon his teaching. I was exposed to his teaching. I remember I was in the Anglican church. And I was living in community and I was doing some ironing. Because you all have to do your bit. And I found some tapes and I started listening to these tapes and I thought, who is this man? I've never heard this stuff before. This isn't Anglican teaching. You know, now, I could have thrown the tapes out and thought, put them on one side, they're definitely dodgy. But I listened more and more and more to his teaching, and it just unlocked and opened a whole new perspective and understanding of God. That's how we have to approach things. That we have to have an open spirit and an open heart. Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, if you want to check it up, that our makeup as human beings is body, soul, and spirit. We are spirit beings with a soul, living in a body, right? That's the way I think about it. Now, when we're born into this world, when a baby comes into this world, we all have natural needs. And the only way that our natural needs are met is through our body and our senses from the world around us. Because when we are born, we are separated from God spiritually because we're spiritually dead. Because of, because of history, because of dear old Adam and Eve and the fall. So therefore, because we need to grow, we need to thrive, we look to the world for love, acceptance, security, significance, purpose, and as we grow, we do these things, we receive these things through work, through relationships, through money, through power, through material things. And as a result, whoops, falling over there, as a result, we experience hurt, pain, rejection, insecurity, disappointment, guilt, shame. And then, the day we are born again, 
our spirit comes alive to God. There's no longer any separation from him anymore. We now have access to purpose, security, significance, love and acceptance from God. But because we previously received it from the world, we have this wrestle. God gives it to me from this side. The world gives it me from this side. We get torn. We no longer need to receive it from the world because we can get it from God. And what God gives us is far, far better. Our hurt, our pain, our damage can be healed. We can start to manifest and live in the presence of God's glory. We will be transformed. That is the process. That, in a nutshell, is the process of our Christian life from start to where we are, to, to go on being transformed. It says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is transformation from the inside out, not through information received, okay? It's a transformation we submit to and we allow that to be done to us. That's, that's what it means to be a sacrifice. The sacrifice just gets on being a sacrifice right? doesn't do much else than be a sacrifice. It's not something we do by our own effort. We submit to God's power and by his grace we become new creations. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In short, our goal is to become like Jesus. I'm going to leave it there, but we're going to say a prayer together, so stand up. This will be one of those prayers where I say, and you repeat it, and as I said to the crew last night, if you don't like what I've said, then just mumble so the person next to you won't know. It's also a bit of an okie-cokie, right? Because at one point, I'm going to ask you to step in, and it would be good if you could manage a step. So if you, push, if you get yourself right back to your back of your chair so that you can take at least a step, right? And at one point, you're going to step back. So it's a bit okie-cokie, okay? Repeat after me. Father God, I thank you for your presence in my life. I invite you to activate my spiritual senses and flow through me. Jesus, I surrender control of my life to you. You are Lord of my life. I step into your presence. Transform me from the inside out. Renew my mind. 
healed my emotions, restore my conscience, cleanse my imagination, direct my will. I step back into this realm. Manifest your kingdom rule through me to the world around me. Amen. Thank you very much.